What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator Ed Opperman. You can find me at Opperman Investigations and Digital Forensic Consulting. Uh, Email me directly at uh, oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. Really excited about today's show. It, it's, our guest is named Roger Phelps. He's written a book called Not Exactly the CIA, A Revised History of Modern American Disasters. Now, you can find him on Facebook. There's a Facebook group with that same name, Not Exactly the CIA, A Revised History of Modern American Disasters. And uh, Mr. Roger Phelps, are you there? Hello. Hi, Ed. Thank you so much. Before we get into your book, they're not exactly the CIA. Tell us about yourself. Who is Roger Phelps? Uh, he, I am a uh, career journalist, retired uh, mostly, but it, it's books now rather than news articles. It's the same thing, though. Uh, when I was a journalist, I always had a project story, a depth story, a, an investigative story uh, to work alongside the Daily Stone because that kept it fun, kept my interest up in, in the uh a career of journalism so uh i happened to get voted uh, best researcher in my graduating class at san francisco state in journalism so uh that's that's it uh right now uh for me uh ed now did your journalism uh, career include a lot of uh, work on the cia no it didn't it uh, was uh, daily journalism for small and medium-sized newspapers and uh it had investigative but not anything concerning the agency no okay so th then what are we going to find in this book not exactly the cia a revised history of modern american disasters well it's a catalog of uh events uh and they are um ones that killed american citizens and got a lot of publicity uh, several of them were air crashes you know lockerbie gander TWA 800. Uh, I believe, Ed, that you have had uh, some, uh, have done some work uh, with your broadcast about TWA 800, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but that's the idea, Oklahoma City bombing, the Trade Center bombings. Uh, those are the subject matter of the book. And the uh, not exactly the CIA label refers to uh, a loose network. Uh, this is not not a club with a membership roster. No, it's a it's a loose network of what I would call jingoist zealots, uh, beginning with anti-communism, evolving into anti-terrorism. Uh, now it's starting to swing back with anti-Russian, anti-China, sort of anti-communism again. But the main point is that many of these guys were fired from the CIA, the record shows, uh, well, by, fired by Jimmy Carter, that is, uh, for excessive cowboying, you know, that end justifies the means type of CIA work where you see a problem and, well, we got to do something about it covertly. So that's what the CIA does. And these guys were zealots, and they couldn't let that go. They can't let that go. So it's, it's the same uh, notion of using resources that were gained during a career with the agency and using them privately for pretty much just the same sort of operation, uh, cowboy uh, operations against uh, uh, perceived ne'er-do-wells. Um, I suppose I should mention why are they doing this? Well, it's um, to quiet dissent. Uh, and the way you do that is the terrorism of these disasters uh, tends to quiet dissent, not only because people are just talking about, oh, the terrible plane crash instead of anything else, but you get 
legislation, uh, for example, after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, President Clinton signed a new bill that uh, greatly increased uh, uh, the national security state uh, nature of this country. So uh, the the group is it's loose again, and it involves people other than uh, uh, ex CIA agents. And this is an important point. So uh, an example is of not exactly the CIA is uh, Army Colonel Oliver North, who ran the CIA supplying of the Contras in Nicaragua. Frank Carlucci, uh, who held posts with the Defense Department and the CIA. Uh, Eric Prince, who's still at large, uh, he, he founded the mercenary group Blackwater, and he's a self-described CIA asset. Uh, the uh, book is uh, full of exa- uh, further examples of men whose actions put them in, in qualification for this label, uh, not exactly the CIA. Let me ask you this then: uh, If they're if they're ex agents and they're they're operating on their own, how are they financing these operations? That's a good question. Uh, as you know, the uh, the CIA itself never lacks for money, but when it does, court, I'm sort of contradicting myself. Whenever the CIA itself uh, lacks for money from the government, it can raise money easily and i believe you know um something about this and one of the just one of the ways is through uh skimming the sales of from major drug dealers now a major drug dealer is just a powerful person in the cia's world he's just a powerful person he has a big network he has lots of money he can get things done uh, he knows things. That's the reason why an agent or an ex-agent or a guy like Eric Prince or Frank Carlucci or Oliver North would know the major drug dealers, such as uh, um, um, Mr. Gorba- um, Kash- Adnan Khashoggi. Right. Uh, uh, the reason they would know him is because they, they have power. They have their own networks. They can get things done, and they know things. They have information. So uh, the first chapter of the book is set at the Cabazon Indian Reservation in Southern California, where three or four CIA agents and the Cabazon uh, uh, tribal officials and officials from uh, the Wackenhut uh, Security Company. Now, there is another, that name Wackenhut is important because George Wackenhut he is another good example. He's just a businessman, but he's another good example of uh, a qualifying member of not exactly the CIA. His company work, has worked closely with the CIA. So uh, the Wackenhut and the Cabazon had a joint arms sales, uh, arms making and sales venture right on the reservation. And at this meeting on, at a firing range outside the reservation with CIA there, and, uh, some arms dealers were there, some arms manufacturers were there, and some uh, Contra generals were there, too. Commander Cerro was there, uh, and his counterpart from uh, the other end of the war uh, at the south and the north. It's the two commanders were both there, and they were buying weapons. And so the... Uh, Contra War uh, had its funding somewhat, at least, from uh, skimming of drug sales. This has been publicized. And uh, so in answer to your question, um, the resources of this network are on drug sales, I would say, you know, that's on the public record, but I would say that's only a, a, a minor fraction of the way that um, this group, this network, is able to raise money. Um, the Contras, you know, all they had to do was ask uh, uh, Mr. Coors uh, for mm-hmm. money. He said, sure, how much do you need? So um, the the question of money is kind of, well, um, 
that's one of the things that they are very good at. They're good at information. They're good at operations. They're good at money. It just it all comes with the territory. Yeah, and I guess if uh, someone like Guaido in Venezuela, um, like the U.S. government will just drop all this money in his lap, I guess he can use some of that money to hire these guys himself. Yeah, uh, the, there's so much loose money. Uh, it, it, you know, <laughs> it can't even be imagined. Uh, these slush funds are just, um, they're deep and they're, they're wide, widely held. Lots of people have. Yeah, like even even in more fun. mainstream politics, like Project Veritas and these groups, and they they have they're showered with money from the Mercers and the yeah. Koch brothers. They're showered with money, you know. Yeah, and yeah. then still they still go raising with money from the public, you know, the gullible public. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. So give us some specific examples. You said uh, TW eight hundred. Now, my understanding is that a lot points to a a naval vessel. And was involved with that. Uh, that's uh, sure the um, what you call it the mainstream story right. is is pretty much um, faulty wiring caused uh, a, an explosion on board. But a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people believe that some um, dirty work was by somebody was involved. And one such is the naval. Uh, missile theory right uh and um let me see here i have some notes uh, i'm just gonna glance at on gwa 800 yeah. uh all right to back up to back up go ahead work go, no, ahead. No, go ahead i was i was gonna fill some time while you were looking <laughs> that's okay you're, you're on the right you're on top of it. well now not to to uh to sort of segue here yeah um at the Cabazon meeting with the CIA and the Condors and all that stuff back in 1981 was a young science genius named Michael Ricano Shuto. Sure. You might be familiar with that name. And I hope, I hope, I hope your listeners are familiar. One thing he produced was uh, essentially a suitcase nuke, uh, tremendously destructive with no radiation evidence as to its use. So in my mind, that's tailor-made covert operations. Uh, now, one characteristic of this, which is called a fuel-air explosive, it's not widely known, uh, but it is a type of explosive, a suitcase nuke. And one characteristic is dual explosions. Every time you have an FAE used, you have two explosions. And there's some technical reasons for that, which I won't go into unless you ask. Um, but dual explosions occurred in the crash of TWA 800. Hey, guys, I got a great new deal for you. It's called Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. Now, I want you to take out a pen and paper and write down Opperman 50, O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N 5-0. Now, Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes, you'll be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more. Uh, there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Snacks, smoothies, and more. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or schedule your deliveries anytime. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. Now head to factormeals.com front slash opperman50 and then you use code opperman50 to get 50% off. 
That's code Opperman50 at factormeals.com front slash Opperman50. O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N-5-0 to get 50% off. Uh. As reported by multiple witnesses. And this uh, takes away the faulty wiring caused a single explosion theory. Uh, and uh, it opens up uh, a can of worms on, all right, who had access to fuel air explosives, assuming, as I think the record fairly well indicates, assuming it was a fuel air explosive, then you do have uh, an outside source. Uh, I suppose a Navy missile could have been armed with a fuel air explosive, but I kind of doubt it. This was supposed to have been a, a routine naval operation, just testing routine uh, Navy hardware. Uh, the fuel air explosive, as I've indicated, oh, um, excuse me, I forgot to mention that the CIA recruited him after he won the Stanford Youth uh, Science Contest by bringing in his own argon laser. Uh, CIA goes, oops, genius, uh, let's see if we can recruit him, and they did. So the, the uh, CIA... Wait, well, Roger, make sure you talk directly into the microphone, okay? Right. Uh, this fuel air explosive is, is proprietary to the CIA and, by extension, others uh, who need to get a hold of resources proper to the CIA. So the the straight uh, Navy missile, um, Pentagon sources say that a thorough inventory check of missile firings on that day ruled out that stray missile theory. So, so the naval missile theory basically rests on, well, the government is lying. The government said, no, it wasn't a Navy missile, but we say that the government is lying. Yeah, Roger, I can't hear it all right now. Go ahead. Government lying? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, sorry. Uh, government lying is involved, uh, and, uh, I think, uh, uh, the research uh, shows. But um, this uh, lying doesn't cover a uh, stray Navy missile. A, a crucial fact that um, is um, available, uh, was at least available on the Internet, is a letter to the FBI from an agent of the Federal Aviation Administration dated August 21st, 1997. I managed to find this on the website of Association Retired Aviation Professionals. The FAA uh, was r routinely radar tracking all of the craft departing the U.S. coast and entering the Atlantic Ocean in the area where TWA would explode. And on FAA radar, radar appeared uh, what a technician called an unknown craft, quote-unquote. And that means that the FAA couldn't find... What he meant by that was that the FAA couldn't find any departure point on water that could be checked with harbor masters for names of departing craft. That's routine work for the FAA. So it didn't, it escaped that test. This unknown craft did. So it didn't depart from water. We conclude that evidently then it departed from land, making it uh, inescapably an aircraft. So the FAA data shows that this unknown craft was uh, around 27 or 28 feet long. And the lead FBI agent himself said it must have been a helicopter. So... 28 feet happens to be the length of the Little Bird attack helicopter made by Boeing, and it's and proprietary to U.S. Special Ops Commandos. It's been used in Grenada, in Panama, and in Somalia, and it fires missiles carrying explosives. So 
So back to the FAA writing to the FBI, uh, this is a quote. He said to the FBI, at the least this craft did not want to be around when big things were happening and kept going when the sun, quote unquote, came out above it, the documented in-flight explosion. I'm going to read that again. This craft did not want to be around when the sun came out above it, the explosion. So um, witnessed multiple explosions, theaters compatible only with fuel air explosives, and an untraceable craft that was likely um, almost certainly a missile-equipped helicopter fleeing the scene of the crash, all in addition to uh, well-documented government and tampering with crash evidence. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about that yeah. uh, aspect of the case. All of this um, appears to fairly strongly point to uh, uh, a plot, not a stray Navy missile, but a plot by men with nexus to the government uh, and uh, uh, ability to obtain uh, attack helicopters and uh, fuel air explosives. Well, um, you know, not to interrupt you for a second, about, uh, you know, I interviewed uh, Frank Sturgis' uh, nephew, um, and uh, Frank Sturgis, the Watergate burglar, you know, CIA guy, uh, assassin, had his own B-25 bomber. He did, private... you say you're the ne- did you say you're a nephew of Frank Sturgis? No, no, I said I interviewed the nephew of Frank Sturgis. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Hunt. You Mr. interviewed yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, who's a, a law professor in Texas. And, you know, he hung okay. around his uncle when he was a kid. He was his uncle's alibi as, as far as the day of the uh, the Kennedy assassination. Okay, He's on record as oh. being his alibi. I remember that, yeah. And uh, what do you call it? Uh, his, <laughs> he had his own privately owned B-25 bomber. So it's not mm. <laughs> it's not unheard mm. of for these guys to have these kind of weapons uh, and this kind it, of material at their exposed to Yeah, access is, is just amazing uh, yeah. if you know the right people. <laughs> yeah. right. Now, now, what about, um, to move on away from TWA 800, because I'm sure the book is chock full of different uh, examples, what about the anthrax attack after 9-11? Did you look into that? I did, yeah. yes. Um, that's interesting. Now, uh, the main thing about that is that they, they investigators, uh, concluded that this uh, weaponized anthrax came from uh, the U.S.'s uh, Fort Detrick uh, laboratory where anthrax was being studied ostensibly and I'm sure at least partly uh, to develop a a defense against weaponized anthrax. Right. And uh, the guy, main guy who was doing that is a defector from the Soviet Union whose name is now uh, Alebek, it was, it once was Alebikov, and he was the main uh, guy, uh, I would say. Uh, he was a, a brilliant anthrax expert in the Soviet Union, and that's why the uh, CIA, once again, um, coveted him and courted him and got him to defect and got him a cushy uh, post at Fort Detrick. Ah. So his um, his research continued there into weaponized anthrax. There were numerous samples at Fort Detrick, as is on the record, um, many of them controlled by Ken Alabeck, who was in debt to uh, the CIA, his handlers, for getting him over here to the U.S. So uh, it was pinned on one of Alabeck's co-workers, but then uh, that theory, if I recall correctly, that theory eventually was dumped, and there is now no conclusive conclusion, excuse me, um, about uh, how exactly the anthrax got out of Fort Detrick and who mailed it to the prominent people. But my research uh, indicates that the most likely source was Ken Alabeck and one of the uh, people who, uh, you know, had done favors for him or somebody connected to one of the people who had done favors said, just said, um, Ken, uh, I need a favor. I need some weaponized anthrax. Can you give me some? Thanks. That, that's the way that the anthrax left the lab. Person or persons unknown who knew 
and uh, had uh, a debt relationship, uh, uh, debt held over uh, Ken Alabeck. And then uh, the mailing was just uh, the uh, aftermath. Yeah, that's one of the stranger uh, cases out there. Um, so, so what else uh, do you cover in the book there? Um, uh, not exactly the CIA. But by the way, real quick, um, I noticed one of your lines here in the uh, description on Amazon. It says, how did America lose power in the world? What do you mean by that? Because from my point of view, America still is the single superpower in the world, the biggest army, biggest navy, air force, air superiority all over the planet. <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean by that? Uh, how did America lose power in the world? Good question. That is not something, uh, that's not a thread of the book that I have uh, retained a lot of um, interest in, because like you say, uh, things have gone the other way since I uh, first wrote that, which may have been as much as six years ago. So uh, I'm, I'm hedging here, but I believe the original idea was, well, we've had... <clears throat> Uh, this uh, undermining of uh, popular uh, elective power, uh, which had been uh, outside of our military, our uh, our basic uh, good uh, point in the eyes of the world. It's many people around the world still think of America as a shining beacon. And so uh, with the uh, undermining of the public, the public's power in determining the course of the nation, uh, now um, you see also a good number of people around the world regarding America as a laughing stock. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, oh, you are, you're the baby country. You're less than 300 years old. We're, we're thousands of years old over here, and you're you're telling us what's what, you know, as you can't handle your country's problems, you know, your uh, the uh, the mass shootings, the the bungling of COVID. Uh, so I, that's a, a rambling uh, half uh, response to your question there. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize the book was six years old. I thought it just came out. So then, let me ask you this. I know it's probably not in your no, book. No, I, I started researching on it uh, six years ago. Okay, so the book did, did it, just come out? It, it, no, it uh, came out in 2021. Okay, okay. Uh, I do have another book just out that came out uh, three months ago. It's called Bitter Heat. By It's published by Trine Day. Right. There, we got that out. All right. Back to you, Ed. <laughs> no, no. Well, what is Bitter Heat going to be about? Is about? Uh, well... Uh, the subtitle that um, would have been more direct, uh, had I thought of it at the time, would have been Bitter Heat, Deliberate Global Warming mm. as gotcha. a Criminal Matter. So the subtitle does begin with the three words, Deliberate Global Warming. No, I would definitely have you come back and talk about bitter heat, about global warming. And I, I want to do a couple of shows about global, global warming. So we'll definitely have you come back and talk about that. Now, what about, did you happen to cover, um, either in this book or in your personal research, the, the coup, the attempted coup uh, under Trump in Venezuela that was put down by the angry fishermen? I did not, no. Because it seems to be uh, right up your alley. Because uh, when you trace that back to all the people behind that, one of them was a, a money laundering client of Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Trump's private security guards were involved in it. it it's uh, uh, these coke dealers and stuff. It's right uh, up with here with your theory of these uh, not exactly the CIA types uh, that are yeah, running what, around. What was the name you? What was the, the name of the person that you mentioned in, uh, in, in connection with Venezuela? Uh, Guado. How do you spell that? Oh, G-U-A-D-L, Guado. That's the uh, the guy that, uh, the, I think they still call him the president in the in exile, and they dumped a That's right. ton of money Good. on that fellow. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Now, uh, you're absolutely right. That was um, extremely provocative uh, and um, very uh, abusive power. Uh, <laughs> but I, I wasn't aware of these uh, further details that uh, you mentioned. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's probably one of the best stories out there. It's underreported, uh, but what are you going to do? So, so cool. what else do you cover in, in the book here? These other incidents, and not exactly the CIA. We have Wackenhut and mustard gas. Where did uh, Saddam hmm. get the raw materials for his mustard gas? Um, we have uh, Promise, the software. We have. Uh, Gander, Lockerbie, World Trade Center 93, Oklahoma City 95, DW 800. Then, um, as far as 9 11, uh, there's one very important uh, aspect of that uh, that I think is very important. Um, back in 1976, and the Secretary of the Army at that time was Martin R. Hoffman. And the Army, <clears throat> on Hoffman's watch, drew up a plan that's um, it's a, <laughs> effectively a, a blueprint of precisely what happened to the Twin Towers 25 years later on September 11th, which is that a computer system in Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, failed to scramble the U.S. fighter jets. This faulty system in Bedford, Massachusetts, on September 11th, 2001, belonged to an outfit called uh, Mitre Tech. And this is spun off from Mitre, all capitals, M-I-T-R-E, a company run by the same Martin R. Hoffman. So uh, that's... Uh, I don't know. That that's just struck me very hard. Um, the perfect uh, terrorist defense defense plan um, came to light in a a lawsuit brought in 2003. A, a 9/11 uh, decedent, uh, his wife, uh, brought this suit, and uh, in the suit, uh, Army Corporal Timothy McNiven. Uh, gave details of this project commissioned to him and some uh, a couple dozen other soldiers of Sea Battery 2 81st Field Artillery stationed in Strasbourg, Germany. Under oath, uh, McNiven said, we were given the scenario of hijacking an airliner and crashing it into a hundred-story building. And this later was specified as the World Trade Center, the building uh, in the model of a perfect terrorist plan ha uh, drafted in 1976 by the U.S. Army in the person of Corporal Timothy McNiven, among others. Um, for the plan, uh, McNiven uh, himself suggested the use of plastic encased box cutters wow. to bypass I just said, box, wow. I just said, wow. Box, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, the box cutters to uh, bypass the airport metal detectors that were first installed in 1972, so it was a current topic then. Um, he, McDivin, also recommended having a group of passengers rush the hijackers. Uh, he said uh, at the session, the planning session, in Strasbourg in 1976, uh, uh, the U.S. Army, there were people from the Defense Department and the CIA who were monitoring the study. And then he says, I wasn't able to get their names, which is not a surprise. But he, I, I believe he's testifying truthfully. He was under oath at the time. So one of the question is, <clears throat> uh, what would have happened if previous to 9-11, these facts had been widely reported. <laughs> the Army drew up the perfect terrorist plan under Martin R. Hoffman in 1976. And then Martin R. Hoffman is the guy who, at least indirectly, was controlling <clears throat> the computers that were to scramble the U.S. aircraft uh, in defense against 
a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. Then, then let me ask you this then. I mean, do, do you believe that was a, an operation that was done by this kind of ragtag group of, of not exactly CIA, these these uh, self-motivated uh, uh, agents and, and uh, mercenaries? Do I believe that not exactly the CIA was uh, deeply involved in 9-11? Yeah. Uh, yes. But okay, but then I, there would I have to be the... Mostly on, yeah. there I would, focus mostly on the money right. uh, angle. People have focused on other parts of the official story that don't hang together, especially the engineers who have done great work on, well, you know, you just couldn't get that kind of damage that, that did happen from the sources that are outlined in the official report. But wouldn't there have to be like a lot more, like NYPD would have to, the heads of NYPD would have to be in on this, you know, in order to How? cover up, right? Oh, to, to, cover, to cover up. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, well, mm, NYPD. Um, At the time, it was Carrick, who was, was dirty as you can get. It, you know, so, you know. Well, yeah. Um, there, there, I don't want to, um, there is a, a strong, specific connection of, of the agency itself, the CIA and the NYPD. Right. Um, uh, concerns... Um, well, you know, the, the agency embedded some agents in the NYPD to, to um, liaise with uh, folks from the United Arab Emirates who were saying, well, we, we, got, we need some more terrorist defense. Uh, and they, wind up, <clears throat> they wound up, <clears throat> the UAE did, uh, giving the NYPD a lot of uh, money. Uh, to have this liaison with them, but that's that's a sidetrack. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Now, now, what about you? Mentioned the Promise software uh, in your uh, when we go through the uh, uh, different chapters. <clears throat> well, uh, <clears throat> what's most important about Promise? What do you think is most important about Promise? Well, I always found it interesting that that guy who ran. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who ran for president, uh, there's that document that's out there where he talks about the, um, he was helping to sell, he was head of the Green Party, I think it was. No, not the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, uh, when Clinton was running a few years back. And there was a document with a letter uh, in his handwriting talking about using the usual sources to sell promised software overseas and uh, laundering the money through Adnan Khashoggi. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, promise really got around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You you mentioned that connection, which is as interesting as uh, any other stuff in my book. Um, the uh, it was appropriated, uh, shall we say, um, the the government in the person, so to speak, of the Justice Department, I believe, was found guilty, so to speak, in court of. Uh, misappropriating the promise software from its inventors <clears throat> so uh it it it's misappropriation spread and it uh it was sold to for example the uh, royal canadian mounted police uh and uh, <clears throat> they wound up having to send some investigators down to california to try to figure out how uh how this happened uh the uh they were talking to the inventors and they were talking to an investigative journalist and but um it really got around um michael reconosciuto um <clears throat> was involved in bootlegging uh some some versions of the promise software uh and that uh, took place, well, this isn't going to connect right. It took place uh, in the Middle East, and it does connect to um, the Lockerbie uh, bombing. But I, I, uh, I don't want to try to string that all together at this time. The, the Promise software was just a perfect uh, record-keeping um, machine that if you are not exactly the CIA, 
it allows you to track informers, uh, drug dealers, uh, the places and times of of deals, of meetings, uh, who is where right now. Who who uh, of all the people that re that we need to keep track of as resources and potential opponents. Uh, this promise is a godsend because it allows us to track them easily. I think that's the main point about not exactly the CIA and the promise software. Um, if these are like rogue agents, right, operating on their own, uh, then how come uh, afterwards, like the press doesn't come out and report on this or the, the Congress doesn't open up investigations? Is it blackmail? What's the reason? Uh, <clears throat> oh, oh, good, good one. Um, the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay. Uh, the local press, the McCurtain County Gazette, reported on the day of the bombing at the Murrah Building that the reporter J.D. Cash went and interviewed uh, public safety officers, firemen, and police who were working the incident and. He, he said that a fireman told him, and I believe there are photographs as well, of firemen carrying out of the wrecked Murrah building undetonated explosives, mm -hmm. such that this um, massive damage to the Murrah building, which uh, knocked out windows 16 blocks away down 5th Street, and exploded automobiles yards and yards and yards away from the Murrah building. Couldn't have been uh, caused only by McVeigh's <clears throat> fertilizer bomb. And that uh, that was common knowledge among people working the scene, that there were multiple explosive devices and that it couldn't have been all McVeigh. And the reporter <clears throat> was... <clears throat> getting responses from police like, well, we've been instructed uh, not to talk about that aspect. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> another public safety officer said, I've been threatened. Yeah. So anyway, the, the, this was all in the local press. So you say, where was the reporting? Well, there it was, you see. But what happened, well, you know that as well as I do, in about a day and a half, the national mainstream story was cobbled together, and no mention was made of multiple explosives. And it just happened that way, and that's the way that a press, a national press, as compared to a local press, uh, wound up operating in that case, as they have in so many other cases. So that's an example to answer your question. Yeah, so many times, too, there'll be a movie, like a lot of made-for-TV movie, you know, about one of these incidents. And people will believe mm -hmm. that movie more than anything. They, they, they could have been in that building or driving by that <laughs> building, you know, and they'll believe the movie more than their own eyes. Well, now you're talking psychology. Yeah. Now, I also have an interest in that. <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of that. Uh, in the book, uh, we have... Uh, a section called Weaponized Information, a strategy of terror for the 21st century. And we have chapter titles such as uh, Against the Clintons, hmm. War on WikiLeaks, Russian Players. Oh, oh now we, we get back to um, Hamilton 68. The, uh, the story is, is that the uh, Russiagate story was false it came from this dashboard uh and uh was um, just um it was fabricated and the um because the uh, dashboard was so easy to use for journalists it was used and multiple stories you know dozens hundreds probably of story major media stories said and it's even in wikipedia there was uh, Russian 
involvement in influencing the 2016 election. That's now on record as fact. But it, it ain't so. That has just come out. Uh, so there's your, um, there's your again, your national press and their habits, you know, their, their, the habits they're forced into using by oh. the business that they're in. Well, explain to us what is Hamilton's. I know you explained to me off the air, man. So they, you probably the audience needs to hear it now. But what is Hamilton sixty eight? Well, uh, I'm just looking into this, and so just the surface. It's, it's what is called a dashboard, and that means um, I don't know what, but it's a source for journalists. This was made the the company. Um, uh, uh, Americans for Securing Democracy. Is it, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to beg off of this. Um, Hamilton 68, <clears throat> uh, American, Americans for Securing Democracy. Listeners, please write these down. Hamilton 68, Americans for Securing Democracy, and especially the U.S.-German Marshall Fund. U.S. German Marshall Fund. This is the uh, source of funding for Americans for Securing Democracy, who made the dashboard that was subscribed to by so many mainstream journalists. The dashboard called Hamilton 68. Now, I, I have some more information on it, but it isn't pulled together into a nice round picture so i'm going to stop there okay and but now you yourself as a journalist were you able to access this dashboard oh, i haven't tried okay all right and because... i don't so the answer is that i don't know who can access it uh let me see here um what do i know about that i don't know anything about that i'm sorry okay that's okay and, and you're saying that's run by ex-spies and it's sort of like disinfo information the names have been reported okay. uh and it's just that that aspect of it has been ignored. It's all Twitter. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Back, back, back into the mic. Into the mic. Twitter handled the dashboard, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So the story now is Twitter knew about this falsity of the Russian bots um, stories, but it kept quiet for years and years. And then, I don't know. So anyway, that's the main story, is it? What did Twitter know, and when did they know it? However, um, alongside that, uh, the names of the people behind uh, Hamilton 68, let me see if I can get this. Oh, yeah, here it is. It's a project, quote-unquote, introduced by uh, ex-FBI agent Clint Watts, okay. as in Watts, Los Angeles. That's been reported. Uh, I think I met Clint the, Watts at a PI convention, and he no had a, a he had a book, a, a textbook. I'm pretty sure I'm going to look up his name right now as you talk. No, that's the, that's the guy. Yeah, he's an author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. This guy, yeah. yeah. How about that? Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's a small world, man. Let me tell you, it's a small yeah, world. Yeah, I tell you, I tell you. Yeah, yeah. So Clint Watts, ex FBI. Uh, what are these names? I have them. I, I know I have them in this file. Well, while you're looking for that, I want to remind the audience, the book we're talking about today is called uh, Not Exactly the CIA, A Revised History of Modern American Disasters. And there's a Facebook book, uh, group uh, with the same name. And our guest is Roger Phelps. And we've been talking about this uh, Hamilton 68, this dashboard run by a bunch of ex uh, one one ex FBI for sure. <laughs> okay, I know because he had written this big textbook, uh, uh, and he was uh, mm. showing it off. Well, okay. Well, right. we've only got a couple of minutes left anyway. So, what would you like to leave us with? We've got about two minutes. Okay. Um, I would like to leave you with the other names of the <laughs> ex agents, right? Uh, and. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get it in two minutes. Uh, oh, no, that's okay. So we've only got a couple minutes left. Uh, what would you like to leave us with besides uh, these names we can't find? Right, right. Mm -hmm. 
Why don't, why don't we try this? As a journalist, you've been a lifelong journalist, right? Now, and you're writing about these topics here. Uh, how confident are you um, in the hands of, of people reporting on your book? And, and, and these new podcasters and these YouTubers and these people on Twitter and stuff like that. Do, do you see a pattern where these types of independent journalists are also being manipulated and handled? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, um, I'm not going to uh, say what I was going to say because that would have involved a curse word. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, like I yeah, just did, yeah. uh, pod, Podcasts are like X. Everybody has one. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, so I have deliberately kind of stayed away from the subject of podcasts. I, uh, where I get my information, um, this is a sidetrack, side but is largely uh, the foreign press. Hmm. You know, the whole thing we've been talking about is, is related to, well, how, how, how thorough uh, and is the American mainstream press? Well, not very, and for some quite good reasons. You know, there's all kinds of pressure. The uh, the story about McVeigh being a sole um, uh, proprietor of um, Oklahoma City, you know, that uh, that's just uh, gospel. Mm-hmm. Even though a a Defense Department uh, um, person has been quoted as saying he was a well-groomed fall guy he was a useful idiot and that's in the book too it's in the chapter but um the foreign press doesn't have exactly the same constraints or the same degree of constraints so um we'll have uh, uh footnotes that refer to the new york times when the new york times has said something useful but i'll have lots of footnotes uh uh, citing uh, Reuters uh, in Germany, uh, citing uh, various, uh, well, in the book that's just out, um, various African publications, this uh, book that's just out, uh, Bitter Heat. Bitter Heat. Uh, various, and, and, various, and Roger yeah. Phelps, on that note, we're, we're out of time. Uh, I've been talking to Roger okay. Phelps. You can find him on Facebook. Uh, the book is called Not Exactly the CIA, A Revised History of Modern American Disasters. It's got another book, Bitter Heat, you can find on Trine Day. Uh, it's about the uh, uh, global warming. So we've got to deliberate have you back. Glo- deliberate global warming. Deliberate global, global warming. So we've got to have you back on that. Thank you so much, Roger Good. Phelps. Good Thank night. you, Ed. Thank uh, you, nice talking to you. Good night. Bye.